Hello again and welcome to Out to Lunch. This is where I invite people who have a gift for storytelling to do so over a few courses of top food. And oh boy, does today's guest have a story. A memoir, Hand Stands in the Dark, tells of a childhood of neglect, abuse, gangland violence and a mother's murder. And somehow, when she talks about it all, she still manages to be hilarious, as you'll hear. So, not an episode to listen to with the kids, this one. Her life also forms the backdrop for a stand-up comedy, widely praised by critics and fellow comedians alike, including Billy Connolly who called her an effing great comic. Although Billy didn't say effing, he said something else. But, well, I wanted to ease you in gently. There is very strong language from the outset of this podcast. You have been warned. Uh, when she's not doing stand-up writing or acting, my guest writes and voices a Glaswegian interior monologue for the likes of Ivana Trump and Nicola Sturgeon on her brilliant videos, which routinely go viral on social media. Recorded remotely, it is, of course, the glorious Janie Godley. They were not prepared for a comedian. So they kept saying things like, you can't have that word. And I'm like, what about unt? And they were debating the word. And I'm like, guys, I'm fucking joking. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put my hand over the sea. Janie Godley as I live and breathe. Oh, it's so good to see you. It's very good to see you with, with that verdant view out the back. That's um, a wax cloth background. Look, look. Oh, <laughs> it moves when you touch it. That's absolutely brilliant because I, I mean, I'm not going to give away your, your exact location, but I understood you were in an apartment and then thinking, oh, is she on a ground floor? No, I don't. I no, I live is. in the West End of Glasgow and I have these backdrops. My husband got me them and it means that when I'm doing stand up, there's one with a brick wall and then it just means that everybody's not seeing my 1996 curtains that I've never changed. I think that's perfect. I think yeah. that's absolutely perfect. Me too. I agree. Um, we're about to have lunch. Before we do that, I want to ask you. It's quite, it's famous, but we're going to talk about it. Some people may not know. You had uh, an impoverished, practically mm -hmm. Dickensian childhood. <laughs> Dickensian. If childhood. I can use the word Dickensian in, <laughs> yes. in you know in Glasgow's East End. Yeah. Food was not necessarily a priority mm. for your parents. And didn't look after you. Was there a comfort food if you could get your hands on it? Was there one thing that was very comforting? A tin of ambrosia cream rice when I was a kid was, I used to look at it in the shop window and go, if I could just get a tin of that. Do you remember they used to have a family-sized tin? And you're thinking, oh, I do. what family like was that seven. Yeah, <laughs> who was getting a family out of that? That's like two portions. <laughs> I know. Well, w this is out to lunch, so that's not happening today. We we are eating courtesy of something you've sorted out, which yep. is fantastic, because normally, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend, I normally go to quite a lot of effort to sort the food out yep. for the guests, but you went, there's a great deli, part of that great tradition of the Glaswegian Italian families. Yes. Eusebi has been there, what, 40 years, 50 years? Oh, I years think they've, they've been here a long time. I remember them as a child. Um, the Italians, when they came to Glasgow, they did two things. They did hair or they did pasta and ice cream. And yeah. sometimes the family did both. Because we, right. Joe Eusebi was the hairdresser and his brother owned the cafe and the ice cream and, you know, the, 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 the fish and chips. As we call it in Glasgow, a special fish. You know, the, the, the breadcrumb. Oh, yum. I do. Yeah. We are getting food from there. In fact, you love it so much. You're eating their food twice today, aren't you? I am. I am having a birthday dinner for my daughter Ashley tonight and they're providing that. We eat out of them three times a week. I've got to show you. So they sent me a greetings card. Oh, and, bless and them. The message inside is, enjoy the food. Thank you again for asking us to feed you. Fingers crossed it all arrives in one piece because you've got a takeaway and I've had a meal box delivered yes. down to London. And uh, now what was the card that they <laughs> sent it? <laughs> They sent you a Trump card. I love Giovanna. Her sense of humour is just brilliant. How it is. wonderful. 
So this will, I mean, fix you in the minds of anybody who may yes. not necessarily immediately recognise your name. Would you like to describe the front of this car? OK, the front of this car... And is... you can use any language you like oh, on this podcast. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, the front of this card is the iconic image of me standing outside Turnbury with the Trump helicopter in the background and a very handsome young policeman in the foreground and me in the middle holding a piece of lino that says Trump is a cunt. <laughs> It was a protest. It wasn't a publicity stunt. And you, we, you, the weird thing is, Jade turns out I was right, you know? It turns out you were... I mean, I, as political commentary goes, I think it was bang on. Nailed absolutely, it. Absolutely on point. And it has to be said, it was also then paid homage to in the brilliant series Succession. Yes, uh, did you know that was going to no, happen? No, I, I know the writers of it, but as soon as it went out, everybody wrote to me and they said, have you seen this? And I was like, that is spectacular. So to, just to explain, the, the paterfamilias of the big media company, who are not the Murdochs, of course they are, yeah. goes back to his family home in Dundee and there is somebody mm-hmm. standing there with the sign... Says Just Roy as a cunt. And yes. we explained, no, they use that language in Scotland all the time. It's everyone, you know. And it was Homa. And they actually picked the same font and the same colour because I designed that myself. It was a piece of lino um, and I took it with me. And I didn't know that it would go viral. I rewatched the video that you put together, about six minutes long. Yeah. And the, the brilliant thing is the police keep coming up to talk to you. And you are impeccably polite yeah, to absolutely. them. Absolutely. But the other thing is, is they were not prepared for a comedian. So they kept saying things like, you can't have that word. And I'm like, what about unt? And they were debating the word. And I'm like, guys, I'm fucking joking. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put my hand over the sea. And then there was one really determined police officer who kept following me and he just kept talking and talking and talking. And I said, excuse me, am I doing anything wrong? He went, no, I went, well, OK, then bye and walked away yeah, from him. Exactly and I was it. like, beat it then if I'm not doing And I was on the sidewalk, I was on the pavement, so the pavement doesn't belong to Trump, but the grass does. And the police just, and then that poor policewoman on the horse, she kept saying things to me like, you have to go up and join your friends. I said, why? The most important question you can ask is why? And she went, because you came with them? I went, okay, well, by that standard, you have to go up and join all the police officers that you came with. My husband's got autism. I could do this for 12 hours. And she just went, I'm fucking done. <laughs> Cloppity do with the horse. She's away. So anyway, Eusebi, they, yep. they have sent us food. Um, I think we've got the same starter, which is uh, polpetti, which are meatballs with uh, their aubergine polpetti, I think. Yep. Um, and a preserved artichoke salad. So it's I have got the preserved a, artichoke salad here. Oh, I mean, I've got mine in a that. bowl. Look, there was a, a piece on you in the Daily Record mm-hmm. where you sat opposite somebody who was reading your oh your God. memoir, um, "Handstands in the Dark," which is an account of yep. this brutal childhood. What happened? This has actually happened about four times. As Ashley will testify. Four times. <laughs> And I keep expecting a different outcome, which shows that I'm insane. A woman was reading my autobiography and I thought, I'm going to go out and for a laugh, because that's my book, and not explain it's my book, just say to her, oh, I've read that, she dies at the end. She will recognise I'm Janie Godley and go, (laughs) nobody recognises me. So I go over to the woman and I say, excuse me, I've read that, she dies at the end. And the woman went, well, fuck you, in the middle of a train journey. <laughs> <laughs> she was so angry that I had to just get up and move to another carriage. I couldn't. I was about to say, actually, it's my book and I, this is a joke, but it would just make me look like a dick. 
can I can I point something out? Yeah. Your book is an autobiography. I know that. You, I know you've that. Written it. It's so a the, joke. <laughs> but so she's reading a book written in the first person. I know. And I'm you've a just dick. told her the person's. Du- I mean, I'm a dick. I know. I thought it no, was. No, you're different. not a dick. The other person's a bit of. No, I know, but how was she? You know, it was me. Oh, this aubergine. Oh, you've got it right. Oh, good. Yeah, so I can good. start eating. Oh yeah, please um, do. Mm. When you were living through your childhood. Mm-hmm such as it was were you aware of difference yes i mean there was lots of kids the same as me you know there was lots of kids who were starving and dressed in tatty clothes and and I, but i was aware there was also the nice buildings with the lovely windows i'm a great window watcher i still do it because we've got huge big tenements in glasgow and the windows are huge because the victorians knew how to let light into houses um, and I used to look at all these windows and they'd see these wee teddy bears and nice curtains and things. And I knew that happy people lived there in my head. So I was aware there was a difference. And I had nuts. And I was dirty most of the time. So I knew that that wasn't something. Oh, my God, these aubergine polpette, is that what this is? Yeah. Yeah, oh, God, it's beautiful. They're very good. Mm. I know your, your father left mm. at some point. How old were you when your dad left? About 12, 11, 12. I'm the youngest of four, so I think they'd exhausted that very toxic relationship. Um, and he left and everything went downhill worse. Was the failure of parenting down to the fact that they just couldn't get it together? They didn't love each other or they didn't love you? No, I think they really loved each other. I think they were typical 50s couple who finally, he just came out of the, he wasn't in the war, he was too young, so he did national service. And then they met, and of course she get pregnant, probably the first time they had sex, knowing the lucky mm. my family. And then they get married, and Mama was, her mum died young, so she was a bit feckless. She had a great sense of humour. You'd have loved her, she was great fun. But she was just chaotic. She liked chaos. It was, she loved drama, she loved books, she was into films, she was a great reader. But Dad and her loved each other. I used to catch them kissing all the time and try and prize them apart. And he was, as many Glaswegian men were, a functional alcoholic. I never knew my dad was an alcoholic, but obviously he knew. And, it all, it, you know, she was always in debt. She was always hiding things like, don't tell your dad you've got nits. Don't tell your dad that we're getting a warrant sale today. I don't think that's something you can fucking hide, Annie. But, you know, it was always debt and money. And then she started taking Valium as mother's little helper, as they do in the 60s. They're like, there's a woman with a problem. Just get her tablets. Um, and she became addicted, as people will. Where was social services? This might sound like a ridiculously no, naive question from the perspective of 2021, but where were they? The, the pe- people say to me, did you tell? I told everybody I was being abused. I told everybody I was hungry. Nobody, nobody listened. I mean, if I had shoplifted, I'd probably have got a social worker. But I was such a good kid. My brother, two brothers, had social workers because they were in trouble and one was in Borstal. But I think it, I think it was just that happened to so many people and there was so many kids living. It was like post-apocalyptic part of Glasgow where everybody was just fucking on their hunkers. So you're lost in the mix, in a sense, you know? Do you recall when the idea of comedy, of making people laugh, of stories, catching attention came from? When I was very young, East Bank Academy was one of the oldest working schools in Britain. It was proper Victorian old building. 
They were outside toilets in a big old building with the white tiles and they were freezing and they had radiators in there that never quite worked. And a creepy man called the janitor who be all avoided. But I remember going into the girls' toilet and they were all smoking and standing about. And somebody went, Janie told me a funny thing. Janie, tell them. So I jumped up on the radiator and I started to tell them a story. And it was a story about my mum having a fight with the headmistress and all the machinations and how Annie walked all the way up Shelton Road with the Alsatian dog behind her, got to fucking kill the headmistress and yada, yada. And the story's a big story. I still tell it on stage to this day. And as I was telling it, the crowd got bigger and bigger. And before long, I actually had an audience. And I'm this wee skinny, fucking hungry kid who looked like a boy most of the time. And I'm telling this story and they're all like, yeah, when I got to the end and I got to the big punchline, my mum punched the headmistress and her skirt went right over and one of her K-skips, wide-fitting shoes come flying off her feet. And everybody laughed. And I was like, oh, that's a good thing then. I like that feeling. Because it was part of, of the abuse you suffered, and I mean that in the sense of neglect, being invisible. Everybody deals with child abuse differently. I dealt with it with the fact that this... Creepy bastard, it was my mum's brother, David Percy. He died in his bed alone. Shame. So I dealt with it with this. It was weird. I had a very strange thing that I used to think, even when I was wee, was this won't last forever and this will end and he will never break me. I will always beat him. And if nothing else, I'm going to beat that bastard if it takes my entire life. And I did. When I was 35, I took him to court and got him put in prison. And then somebody really beat him up for my birthday, which is the weirdest present you would ever imagine. Yeah, because I believe in, in the story you tell, what you really wanted was a nice bracelet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they beat him up in the prison. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued, actually, and I've always been intrigued, and partly, if I'm honest, because of my own parents, yeah. who both had very meagre beginnings, particularly my dad. Some people survive it and some people don't. And you're a survivor. I told you the story about contacting your mum, haven't I? You have, but I think for full disclosure, you should, because obviously it's another part of your biography as well. So explain the, the reason you right, had okay. to contact her. In 1982, my mum and dad had been well split up. My mum got another boyfriend called Peter, Peter Greenshield. Peter and my mum had been dating and he'd just come out of prison for trying to kill another woman. My mum is so good at picking men. In 1977, 78, 79, just when I was becoming a, an adult, she had this boyfriend, Peter, and he'd already been beating her up. He'd already tried to kill her. He, I mean, I witnessed through a window and tried to hit her with an axe and we tried everything to get her away from him, but she kept going to court and going, no, Peter's a good man, blah, blah. And it's coercive control, everything like that. And then in 1982, he finally, she came to live with me. I had a pub at the time. I was married then in a different area. And then she went home, back home, and then she went missing. Um, she didn't have a phone. So my sister called me and she said, we haven't seen my mommy over the weekend of you. And I was like, what? My mum never spent a night out her own house, never. So I knew immediately she was dead. I just knew she's dead. You just knew oh, immediately? Yeah, totally. And did you know who had done it? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. You didn't have to be Columbo for this story. So I went up to her house in Shettleson on Monday morning at 9 o'clock and her benefit book was there. So if Annie hadn't cashed her benefit book, only two things would stop that, a nuclear war and her death. So Peter had taken her a walk away up the River Clyde up towards Motherwell 
he he beat her up, put her in the river. She died. He threw her in. He came back, and when the police kept saying, "Have you seen Annie? Have you seen Annie?" He said, "All right, now I remember. I was with her, but she committed suicide. But it's not against the law." Eh? Witness a suicide. Yeah, witness a suicide. And then he went on to brag how he killed her. The police came to me. I think you should explain how you got this news. I was in the pub. It was the day the Falklands War started. So we didn't have extensive news channels as we do now. So everything was through the radio then. You know, you'd listen for the local radio. So I put the radio on. I'm standing behind the bar and I hear the body of a woman, Annie Curry, has been found in the River Clyde. And I'm like, what the fuck? The police hadn't even told me. I heard it on the radio. And the customers are like, are you okay? And I was like, no, that's my ma. She's been found in the Clyde. They're like, oh, that's great. Can I have a Guinness? Because not a lot of people had empathy. The police came to see me and they said, oh, you know, your mum was just a wee drunk woman. She probably just fell in. I went, with a man who's done time for killing other women, who tried to kill her three times, once with an axe, twice with fire, and suddenly he's the fucking victim here, you know? And they went, oh, she's just a wee drunk woman. These things happen. And I thought, oh, you fuckers. It's not the Glaswegian police finest hour, is no, it? No, Taggart is a lie, is all I'm saying. I had all this horrifying fucking anger and grief, Jane. I'm like, my husband's family are all men. They're all just men. It's all men in the pub. I had nobody to talk to. So I opened a women's own or some women's magazine and I saw a picture of your mum and she did the problem page. I don't know which one it is, to be honest. Oh, it's the problem page in women's own. That's it. At this point, I always have to explain because there is a demographic, Janie, believe it or not, who Mm -hmm. doesn't know who my mother was. So Claire Rayner was an agony aunt. Rather well known. Carry on. I've got a pen and a bit of paper. And it was the first longest thing I had ever written. And it was really therapeutic, getting it all down. So I'm standing behind the bar, and it's a quiet day, and I went, Dear Claire Rayner, and I told the whole story about being abused. In fact, I think I sent your mother the first draft of my book. <laughs> In three pages. God you wouldn't her. have been the first to do that, it has to yes, be said. I know. It was only about four or five days later I got a letter back. Um, and it came in, because I ran a pub at the time, it came in with all the bills and the invoices, and there was this white envelope, and my name was Janie Story then, and I opened it, and, oh, she was so amazing. She spoke about how hard it must have been to be motherless, and she told me that I had to go and speak to somebody. She says, you will find somebody you can speak to, because I was telling her, I don't have anybody else to speak to. She told me that, you know, the child abuse that I had suffered, it sounds like it'll make you stronger than any of the men you've ever encountered. And it was the first time I'd ever had another woman say to me, you're going to survive this and see all the men that's fucked you around and killed your ma. You will transcend what they are because I can tell for your writing that you've got a sparky grit of spine in there that'll get you through it. But she encouraged me to go and get counselling and I did. Um, And it was the nicest thing that ever happened. This woman who I don't know, who I never got to thank because I never wrote to her again. I just went, okay, and I took all that on board. And it was amazing. Well, that's a lovely story. I receive all the adulation in her place because she's been gone 10 years. Yeah, but um, she she was, and she was no fucking nonsense. There was none of that glad handling and like, oh, that's a shame. I'm sorry for your loss. She's like, sounds like men have fucked you about all your life. Well, listen up, sister. You're going to be fine. <laughs> that was kind of I think of she probably recognised something similar. Her own childhood was not as baroque as mm-hmm. yours. To use, you know, various euphemisms, yep. but it was it was pretty full on. 
it's interesting to me why some people are like balls that spring back out when they're yeah. dented and some just aren't. And you were you were the former. You got away, though, courtesy of, I mean, I don't know if this is fair, but courtesy of a man, your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked about his autism. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether in the, the emotional maelstrom of your family life, to come across somebody with that classic systemizing mm-hmm. mm-hmm. mind was... Absolutely It was delightful. unbelievable, Jay, to meet somebody who's very organised. He was only 16, running a fucking bar. Who lets that happen? But when we first met, and I said to him, I don't want to get married, I don't want to have babies, and he went, what do you want to be? I said, I want to act, I want to write, I want to travel. He went, yeah, we can do all that. And I'm like, have you seen the fucking world? This is the East End of Glasgow. There's no Stephen... Spielberg uncle hanging about. It's just the creepy ones we've got here. And he's like, well, if you want to date, you'll do it. I don't understand why you would put barriers in front of yourself. <laughs> and that's typically him. He's like, I don't know why you're saying it louder. Just go do it. So we got married really young. And then when we had the pub and he would say to me, go join a drama group. You want to act? Right. And I remember him standing behind the bar and going, look at all these characters. Go fucking write it down. And I did. How, how long were you behind the bar for? 15 years. Do you think you learnt perfect heckle comebacks behind oh, fuck the bar? Oh, yeah. They used to bring in friends and go, watch this, she's really funny. And they would say things to get me to slag them off, you know. I was once heavily pregnant. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a beautiful fringe play what happened and my husband wasn't there. And this woman, not mum, I don't know why I'm laughing, but I was like a day away from giving birth. And so she was filling out a form. The social security was in my street, so they always come into the pub to fill in their forms. And somebody banged in here, just this innocuous wee woman, and she stood up and picked up a stool, and I still actually have the pub stool. It's right there. She picked it up, and she fucked this man right in the head. <laughs> just chaos burst out of nowhere. It was not expected. And then the woman who created all the mess went, stop! She went, that woman's pregnant. Everybody can't do it. And then she just sat in her seat and my husband walked in and it's as if nothing had happened. So when you see all that, there's comedy, there's character that you write about, there's visuals that you'll never see again. There's, It's just beautiful. Can I say that if anybody wants to catch a glimpse of the great uh, Janie Godley as running a bar in Glasgow, there is Wild Rose, the movie <laughs> starring my mate Jesse yes. Buckley, in which you have a turn. As, as the landlady. And that's funny, because when I left the pub in 1993-94, um, my husband's brother, who were all complete arseholes, the last thing they shouted at me is, you're fuck all but a barmaid. Well, I'm a barmaid in an Oscar-nominated movie, so <laughs> up you. Shall we go on to the main course? Yes, I was about yes. to say. So I think we're going two different ways. So you have got uh, what they brilliantly call yes. yesterday's lasagna. And what's important about this is lasagna is always oh. better the second Remanded, day. remanded lasagna, it's called in Glasgow. Yeah. Is it called remanded? Remanded mince and remanded lasagna. Anything that's left over is called remanded. Everything has to have a prison theme. <laughs> it's on remand. And I have got the Pelham Farm slow-cooked mutton with braised... <laughs> Sechi, which is actually a chickpeas. I mean, I remember Eusebi, Giovanna's grandfather in the cafe in my street. 
he used to make the best cold meat pies and things and the best chips and lasagna. And it was our introduction to foreign food because we are poor kids. We're not getting couscous, and at least until we're a ball head away from our menopause. I mean, the, the nearest we got to foreign food was a fucking Vesta boiled dried curry thing with raisins in it. I'm sorry, I won't hear a word said against a Vesta oh, boiled Oh, people boiled love curry. the Vesta boiled thing. They do, they <laughs> do indeed. When you, you know, first started out doing comedy, yeah. it was more standard joke, 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 yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it kind of was, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I hadn't seen another woman do my job because there wasn't any female Scottish stand-ups I think there was Donna McPhail and Rona Cameron, but they were in London. Jenny did a year in my pub. So I hadn't a benchmark to go from. So I just got up and told jokes and told funny stories and funny observations. I wasn't I wasn't telling funny stories. I was telling stories in a funny way. But isn't it the case that Stuart Lee yeah. had a, a major impact yeah. on the way you went yeah. forward? We were sitting one night and I was about to go on stage and we were chatting and I told him a really funny story. What was my it? My husband and I were... Um, going along the road in the car and um, he stopped in the zigzag lines and a policeman arrested him and told him he had to go to court for stopping in the zigzag lines and it was me that made him stop. And then when we went to court, the policeman, I realised, I had did his stag night and the last time I had saw him, he was eating a finger of fudge out of a stripper's vagina. And when he says, have you ever seen the arresting officer before? And I went, yeah, I have. The last time I saw him, I saw him eating a fudge out of a woman's fanny, you know. <laughs> two points from your licence, but it was worth it for the punchline. And he said, why the fuck are you not telling these stories on stage and doing that stuff that you're doing? Tell us about your husband saying weird shit. I, I told him that my husband said to me, you're a fat, ugly cow. And I said, that's the worst thing you could ever do to me. He went, no, it's no. The worst thing I could ever do to you is kill your child and not tell you where I buried her. Because he's got autism, and it's a funny story. But see, why would they not tell that story on stage? So <laughs> it's incredibly yeah. dark. I mean, that's the point. Because in two thousand and three, you took this show to mm-hmm. Edinburgh, which was let's do a jolly comedy show about, about my life of child abuse and my mother's murder. I think that I was the first comedian to talk about child abuse. Now it's called confessional comedy, but I did it way back eighteen, nineteen year ago. Is it therapeutic? Other people hearing it validates my right to say it and makes me believe it really did happen and it's okay. Are you bearing witness then? Yeah, I think so in a sense. Also, I don't have a shame button. This is my life, this is who I am, you don't like it. Fucking avert thine eyes. I think that I wanted to be honest and authentic and I do have funny things to say, so I just did it. You've said you're terribly unprofessional. You get on stage without necessarily being entirely sure where it's going to go. But do you... Tell stories to yourself. Do you write them down or do you think your way through your own life and stretch it out into lines that, that work? What do I've you never do written anything down comedy-wise. Ashley is fucking horrified because she's a stand-up um, and she writes extensively and has writing days where she writes. And she said, I fucking hate everything about you. I have watched you walk onto a stage in the biggest room and go... And she makes a fool of me. She says, my mum does this. Hi, everybody. Who remembers shoes? And everybody laughs. She went, go fuck yourself. That's not even a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't write anything down. I trust this instinct thing that I've got that I'll go, here is a thing. It's like a menu. I'll go, here is soup. We don't like soup. 
Okay, here is lamb. We don't like lamb. Okay, here is a vegetarian dish. We don't like that. Okay, here's potatoes. We don't like. I have so much that I can test the audience straight away if they're not buying it. Move on. Move on. Move on. Every time. The one comic that you you can be compared to in that storytelling vein and also Glasgow is Billy Connolly. One of the joyous things, I think, of the past sort of 25 years is watching Billy Connolly move from being uh, he's entertaining to he is an absolute legendary figure and master of, of what he does. Ashley and I were in Wellington, New Zealand, doing a comedy festival. Turns out Billy Connolly was in the room above us. He was back there doing the ADR for the Hobbit movie. And I had never really met him. I'd met him very briefly when I had the pub. And so the hotel had these wee bits of paper that said, today's comedy festival, Janie Godley, who's known as the female Billy Connolly. And then I realised they'd put that under his door. And I went, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm going to have to kill myself. So I went down to reception and I gave them a copy of my autobiography. And I said, look, I know that Billy Connolly's in the hotel. He's in the room above me. Could you give him that and say it's from me? And this is, and I wrote a wee note. I, I never wanted to meet him because I was so horrified about that. About 20 minutes later, the, the landline in the hotel suite went, and he went, hi, it's Billy. And I thought it was one of my comedy friends. I was like, fuck you. And he went, tongs your bass, which him and I know is a gangland. I went, oh my God, it's Billy Connolly. He says, would you like to meet downstairs for a cup of tea? I ran. Ashley had to pull me. She went, mum, put a brow on. Um, comb your hair. Don't press all the buttons in the lift. And I went down and we sat for about four hours just talking. We never once spoke about comedy. He was the most amazing. And then he said to me, I'll come and see your show tonight. I went, oh, please don't. don't. It's like Frank Sinatra coming to see you do karaoke. Please don't. He's like, fuck you. I love comedy. You can't tell me where I can go. I was like, okay. So, of course, he turns up. So him and Ashley, it's just a wee comedy club in New Zealand. And he was so gracious to all the staff. He turned up early. And then he sat with Ashley, the pizza, the cup of tea. She made, she got the tea organised. And I've got a picture of Billy Connolly and Ashley sitting with their arms folded like that watching me. And above them, above them is a poster of me. That moment when the curtains opened and I walked out, I thought, fuck, Billy Connolly's here. And the show went great. It went great. And he said to me, not once did that audience turn around to look at me. That's how fucking good you are. And I was like, I mean, you're a fucking great comedian. And I was like, bit, and Ashley went, do you know what he did? I went, what? She went, he was fucking guessing your punchlines. He was whispering to me, I know what she's got. Because <laughs> he could see where the story was going, you know. And then we spent a couple of hours together chatting and we walked home and then we saw each other that whole week and it was just the highlight in my life. He'll still email me and say, send me a wee funny story. So I write a wee funny story and send it him. Do you, have you got dessert, I've by got the way? dessert coming, yeah. Jay has an almond biscotti. I've given you a pistachio and raspberry popsicle. But look at that. So the almond biscotti is Oh, I in the love shape. those almond biscottis. It's soft and it's chewy, and I'm very happy because mm. of the distance my food has travelled. When you got the, the, the chance to write the book, were you at all intimidated by the simple business of the writing? John Fleming, who was this real comedy buff, he said, I will guide you through it, but you have to write every word. And he told me, you're a great writer. Believe in yourself. He bolstered me, bolstered me up. But what was harder is I wrote my first fiction book this year for Hodders and Staunton, and it's in the process of being edited. That was the fucking hardest thing I've ever done. Autobiography, writing about my deed, Doug, my ma, the abuse, the murder, the nits. Fuck all. Piece of piss. Yeah. <laughs> right. Writing about people who don't exist. That was hard. How good is that biscotti? It's really the chewy bit in the middle, isn't it? You just want to die for it. As we said, the past year 
for anybody in the live comedy business has been somewhat yeah. challenging. I think it would be possible to say that Joni Godley has had a very good pandemic. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if that's not a terrible thing to say, well, you, you are at least laughing. Um, yeah. The, the revoicing of the videos has gone extremely well. You've just picked up two awards, uh, Scottish Comedy Awards, Best Online Content, Woman of Influence Award from Chortle. And Chortal. I won Best Actress at the Short Film Awards because a film that I wrote and appeared in called The Last Mermaid women always get sort of sidelined in comedy. You know, we don't always get the big gigs. Women have always had the side hustle gone. So I've had the podcast gone for 12 years. Ashley and I have been making funny videos. She did The Handmaid's Tale with Scottish. Margaret Atwood retweeted it. She made uh, The Harry Potter with Scottish, the Bobag, Bobag, Harry Potter. 700 million billion hits that got. We've always been making content way before the pandemic. I have had a good pandemic, but I've also donated about 50 grand all in to the Carers Trust and the STV Children's Appeal. So I, I went, OK, we're going to make money. Let's try and make money for, for everybody. Don't, don't you know, it's not been a great pandemic because I want to be on stage, but I've survived because people bought the book. People bought Handstands in the Dark and managed to get me an income. And I was like, fucking yeah. So your voiceovers, yeah. revoicing of videos, you can find them all. If you go to jennygoddy.com, yeah. it will redirect mm -hmm. you to the YouTube page. It's all there. You gave an alternative voice, have given an alternative voice, an internal monologue to Nicola Sturgeon. I think she's actually expressed certain admiration. Oh, she has, but you know, the minute they do something wrong, they'll get a kick in the balls like everybody else. You get a lot mm. of abuse. Um, if, if, you want, if you want fun, don't just go to your Twitter stream, yeah. put your name into Twitter uh -huh. and watch it unfurl. You run into the fire, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you well, you've been raped at five and had your mammy murdered and watched her being hurt with an axe. Some cunt in a football strip calling you fat really doesn't have an effect on you. <laughs> Is there never a bit of your head that goes, oh, just rest now, Janie, quiet life? Yeah, I'm going to nah. fight. I'm going to take your mammy's advice. She told me back in 1982, never let MD dim your light. Keep shouting, keep talking. And Claire Rayner's advice saw me well. She was right. Nick cunt will dim my light, Claire. I'll keep shouting and I'll keep talking. So I trust her. I love it. I love it. I throw a question at you and you basically throw my mother's words back at me as to the reason why you're going to Well, she did. She told question. me, don't let them silence you. Never let MD silence you. She, she told me in that letter that silence is what kills people. It's the hiding and never be silent. When I'm preparing for each of these... Yeah. Producer and I always have a discussion about what we should be trying to encourage the interviewee towards talking about. And this morning I said to Selena, just. producing, I said, I'll be really honest, let's just wind her up and watch her go. <laughs> That's the way you do it with me. Just put the on switch and blabbity blabbity blah. <laughs> well, it has been a fantastic blabbity blabbity blah and, and terrific food. I've eaten very, very well. When you go into Yusebi tonight, do thank I them will. from me the food was, for a terrific lunch. The food was great. All the way from Glasgow to I London. I can't believe they got it sent oh. down to you. How good was that yesterday's lasagna, Ramanda lasagna? I love their food and 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 everything. that they're, they're, They also work with the homeless. And every time I've went down with my wee sausage dog in the pram, yes, I have turned into that woman. Um, they always have a biscotti and a coffee red and a chat because I've, I've, I've went down there crying with depression and sadness and what the fuck is happening to the world? And they've always cheered me up and had a laugh with me. So, and you've done that today as well. So thank you. 
Well, here to serve. All that remains for me to say is Jenny Godley, thank you very much for staying in for lunch with mm. me. It's been lovely. Thank you. I can't wait to see you in the flesh. Well, what a treat. I could have talked to Janie over breakfast, elevenses, high tea and supper as well. And a huge thanks to the wonderful Eusebi restaurant and deli for the delicious Italian food from the east end of Glasgow. And their name is spelt E-U-S-E-B-I if you want to look them up. Uh, if you like these podcasts, and we sincerely hope you do, please rate. Five stars are so good. Comment and share your favourites as it does help us to keep making them. And if you haven't already, you can follow to get a new podcast as soon as it's freshly baked. Out to lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's particle physicist, broadcaster and former D-Ream keyboardist, it's Professor Brian Cox. Yeah, I think what I was basically saying was I wouldn't consider moving to the moon until <laughs> until the Rabinians, I think is what I'm going to point.